Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right, everyone, welcome to the 17th edition of our podcast, Six to Eight Weeks, um, brought to you by UCSF Sports Medicine with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Drew Lansdowne, and Dr. Brian Feely. This week, we want to tackle a whole bunch of injuries that have occurred in the NFL, both uh, very serious uh, from Dak Prescott, a great comeback story in Alex Smith, and then uh, potentially a quick return, too quick a return to play with Jimmy Garoppolo. But I think maybe let's start out with Dak Prescott. I mean, it definitely caught everyone's attention this weekend. Big open injury. He gets up, foot's pointing the wrong way, and everyone's saying he's got, he has a compound fracture. Brian, what, what's, a, what's a compound fracture for our audience? Yeah, it took me a couple years through orthopedic residency to realize that a compound fracture was the same thing as an open fracture. And I think the importance of this is really, really that the bone is exposed to the skin. So I think there was a, wasn't there a Syracuse player, somebody in the um, NCAA tournament a few years ago that had an open fracture where you could see the bone sticking out after he missed a block. And this is essentially what that is, except for it's now exposed to grass and turf, or at least field turf. Um, The reason why this is important is the outcomes are so much worse when the bone is exposed to air and is essentially exposed to the elements. So I think for a typical ankle fracture, we would talk about this being a 10 to 12 week recovery, maybe not back this season. This can be a devastating injury, which we've seen in other players as well. And I think in the best of circumstances, and certainly we're hoping for the best for Zach Prescott. Prescott, Dak Prescott. And Drew, one of the things they talked about was that he had a dislocation. I mean, is that kind of a worse prognosis for him? Because it seems like he broke something and dislocated it. So you've got both soft tissue and bone injuries. Is that going to kind of make things a little bit harder, kind of like Gordon Hayward for the Celtics? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the um, dislocation and then the open nature of it, it all just reflects um, like the type of energy it took to cause that injury. Uh, so you've got the bone, the muscle, the ligaments, um, the soft tissue. Um, and anytime it's, you have the fracture dislocation, just a high energy mechanism and a lot of trauma to that area. So, um, you know, part of it will be getting the ankle lined back up, getting um, the bone fixed, but then also that uh, soft tissue healing. Yeah, I think it's tough. One of the things that um, often happens is you get compared to other injuries. And especially for these lower extremity traumas, there aren't really necessarily good comparisons. And you can look in the NFL and see there was a wide receiver a couple years ago that was back in about five to six months and was doing light drills. And sometimes that can happen with just, you know, essentially a tiny poke of the bone and a relatively clean fracture. Obviously, none of us know the severity of this injury and exactly what the x-rays look like, but these can be devastating injuries and comparing one to the other and saying, well, the last open fracture got better pretty quickly. This won't be that big of a deal. It's really, really hard to say. And I'm guessing that even the surgeons that are involved with it can't say right away. I think oftentimes with these open fractures, the severity of the injury doesn't really declare itself sometimes for even a few weeks after we've already fixed the fracture. Yeah, I think everyone's really concentrated on like when he's going to get back. I mean, I think one of the, the biggest complications is the risk of infection. I mean, they talk about when's he going to play, when's his bone going to heal. I mean, I think from from the Cowboys team physician standpoint, it's making sure there's not a need for another surgery because the bone's sticking out through the skin, as you mentioned. There's graft, there's turf, he's wearing his uniform, there's lots of bacteria that can come in. So 
even though his bones may heal, I think the bigger issue is, is preventing, preventing infection. And then, you know, and then we kind of worry about healing, healing down the road. What do you think about career wise, Drew? I mean, let's say he kind of ends up not having an infection. He heals everything. I mean, do you think this is going to impact his career? I mean, this is, there isn't a good data for kind of mobile quarterbacks like Dak getting back to getting back to, you know, playing at a high level. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think it's like so hard to say right now. Um, and I think, you know, I would still expect that, you know, we will see him back. I mean, we just saw Alex Smith come back and, um, you know, kind of question about um, how well he's been able to come back, but like such a, an awesome story that he's able to, you know, get through all that and make it back to play again. Uh, but, you know, I think um, like certainly the main goal will be, you know, making sure that he heals the fracture, gets through without some of those real serious complications. And then, um, you know, from there, hopefully he's able to make it back and play. And um, I think, you know, if all goes well, I think it's, you know, pretty realistic to see him back next year. Um, and I mean, he was having such a great season too. Um, and um, I think, you know, even with some limitations, he'd still be you know, a pretty talented quarterback. So you're basically saying that even with an open fracture and an ankle dislocation, Andy Dalton's a, not a good quarterback. <laughs> I, he gives him a chance. Anybody, I mean, you has touched a chance me. anybody has a chance in the NFC East right now. That's not, <laughs> that's not really fair, but Andy Dalton had plenty of good runs with the Cincinnati Bengals. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Alex Smith, Drew, you know, Brian, you know, you having seen an injury and hearing stories about it, I know on ESPN did that, that whole documentary on him. I mean, what are your thoughts when you see Alex Smith, not only just suiting up for an NFL game and playing, I mean, we all saw kind of how serious his injury was. When I think about Alex Smith, I think about Aaron Rodgers in a 49ers jersey and a decade and a half of my life forever changed. I can still look back at the moment that the 49ers were 2-14, and 14, and I thought, ooh, we're guaranteed to get Aaron Rodgers. This is going to be the start of, a, of the next great 49ers era. All that being said, when Alex Smith had essentially what looked like a similar mechanism injury to, uh, to Zach, Zach, Dak Prescott's, um, it's a hard name for me to pronounce. I can't pronounce most, most Cowboys names. Um, you know, he shows exactly what can go wrong, even in the best of situations. So he was taken exactly what we, we were taught in training to do. He was taken emergently to the emergency room. He was washed out. His fracture was fixed. And not only did he get a bad infection, he ended up getting something called necrotizing fasciitis, where you essentially have rapid destruction of all the tissue in the leg. And the fact that he still has a leg is a miracle and a testament to how hard the physicians worked, how much effort he put in to getting himself better. And the fact that he's playing in the NFL is really a testament to how much dedication he had to get back on the field. And it's been, I believe, just about two years and you know he looked as good as he did when he was with the 49ers. Probably not as good as his best years, but he was out and he was mobile. And I think that says a tremendous amount, mainly about how hard he worked and to a certain extent, how lucky he was. Yeah, I think it, it does raise a point about getting the, the infection, you know, cleaned out. Cause I think that, you know, once his infection was taken care of, there's a thought that then the bone can heal. So I think that whole point can't be underemphasized that you get them in, you get it clean, you get the antibiotics. And if you can get the infection out, then the bone's going to heal. But that really was a limiting factor. Um, kind of in his in his case. 
Yeah, I mean, you guys aren't old enough to remember, but this was a similar injury to Joe Theismann. And Joe Theismann never came back. And that looked like it was a cleaner break, but that was also an open fracture. And, and unless um, mistaken, that was his last game in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, that ended his career. What about, uh, what about if these, like, you get an open finger fracture or something in the upper extremity, Drew? Is that something you, you, you kind of have to be as aggressive about? Or is it kind of a little bit different for the lower extremity? Yeah, the upper extremities, uh, they do respond differently. Like the infection risk is just not the same. Um, and the tibia especially, and then the closer you get to the foot, um, just the blood supply around it, the soft tissue coverage around it, um, there's just not that much. Like you can feel on your own leg that um, the bone is just right under the skin. And then, so if that's all injured with trauma, um, it's just hard to get that to heal and um, hard to stave off that infection. Uh, but a lot of times, like with the upper extremity, um, like those we can pretty safely prevent infection and you know get good healing good outcomes yeah i think ronnie lott showed you can be a hall of fame player and you don't even need 10 fingers you can just yeah. cut one off and keep playing i think the thing that amazes me the most about alex smith was just not not only the fact that he's created bone that's strong enough for football but all that muscle loss i mean he had so much muscle damage uh, and the ability for him to regenerate that muscle, I think that's the most astounding thing is that he actually has the power to cut and pivot and do all those things that you do as a quarterback. And obviously he's more of a pocket passer, but um, the fact that he can generate that strength off his leg, I, I think is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's really impressive. And I think just his motivation to go through all of that rehab um, and even just to, you know, sometimes it's a struggle to even just be able to walk after an injury like that. And then to, come back at the highest level is um, yeah pretty cool to see yeah I think we underrepresent when we talk about non-mobile quarterbacks and what non-mobile means they are still infinitely more mobile than 99% of us so I think it's really easy for us to say oh, okay he's a pocket passer any he is more nimble than everybody else probably when he was still in his external fixator probably when he was still in the hospital I know he's more mobile than I am so to see him out there at all I think is amazing I mean, they, they do call you the pocket arthroscopist Brian so it's uh <laughs> Drew, Drew, Drew just moves and dodges traffic like nobody in the OR so that's right <laughs> Now, speaking of speaking of kind of gruesome injuries, what's uh, ask you and Drew and, uh, Drew and Brian what, what's the most gruesome sports injury you've seen like if you've seen it professionally as a fan, what's something that really sticks in your mind? Uh, Sean Livingston. Yeah, I agree. Like that was just unbelievably bad. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing. Like you have these really the most some of the most gruesome injuries, and people are actually. I mean, Livingston came back, played well. Alex Smith is on yeah. that list with me. I remember Willis McGahee when he um, oh yeah had his injury as well too. But it, it's pretty remarkable that some of the most gruesome injuries, just based on some of the advances that have been made in sports medicine, these these players have been able to get back and have long careers afterwards. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think it's one of the hard things for a sports fan to, to realize that, you know, Sean Livingston can come back after tearing his ACL, PCL, posterior corner, MCL, dislocate his kneecap, and Brandon Roy seems to go out for a few small knee arthroscopies over and over and over, and yet he only played, I think, six years in the league, and Livingston had a long career and was instrumental to the best um, – the best team of the 2000s and probably the only team that could beat the 1990s Chicago Bulls. I, I disagree with that. I don't think anyone could have beat the Bulls. I mean, different era, 
different level of toughness. Uh-huh. Jordan would have played with an open fracture. Robin <laughs> would have created an open fracture and Steve Kerr would have hit threes just like Curry would have. So, Yeah, I, I think uh, I think having Kerr there on both teams sets an unfair an unfair comparison, but I'm, I'm still taking it away. You guys can't cover outside. There was no reason to ever cover a single team outside of 18 feet. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast right there. 90s <laughs> Bulls versus Warriors versus the whole LeBron versus Michael, you know. Michael debate story. <laughs> um, but kind of, you know, kind of pivoting over now to kind of maybe not so serious injuries or an injury that people don't understand. One of the main issues about Jimmy Garoppolo may not have played really well this weekend was, you know, this high ankle sprain. A lot of people just hear high ankle sprain. They don't really know what it means. Drew, can you kind of describe to the audience what is a high ankle sprain as opposed to a low ankle sprain? Yeah, so there's a number of different ligaments that hold the ankle together, um, and you know the uh, so the ankle has the tibia, the fibula, and the talus um, is the bone that starts at the top of the foot, and then um, the ligaments help keep all those in position and uh, let you move the ankle, and um, and then there's a number of ligaments that are lower down, um, and those are what we think of with the traditional ankle sprain, um, and that can range from you know just a little twist to something more severe. And then um, the high ankle sprain, um, we also call it the syndesmosis, and it's the ligaments that keep the tibia and the fibula together, so the big bone and the small bone in the shin. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a kind of a different pattern of injury, and then um, those just seem to, they take longer to heal. Um, and that's why, you know, whenever you hear that with somebody, it's like, okay, well, it sounds like, you know, he'll be out for a few weeks just because it takes longer to heal, and sometimes can be a bit more severe. Brian, isn't it something you can just put up with the pain? I mean, it seems like, you know, nothing's torn. Shouldn't, shouldn't you just kind of take, you know, get a shot of something, take some pain medication, you should be able to be able to play? Like, is it too, are we giving Jimmy too much, uh, too much credit to his injury for his performance? No, I think he should. I think it's actually pretty tough to come back this quickly. I think when you think about a ankle sprain, we've all had them. We roll our ankle, we step funny, and then we're a little bit sore, maybe a little bit swollen on the outside of our foot. I think the best way to think about a high ankle sprain, the only thing similar about it is the word, or the words ankle and sprain. It is essentially um, an injury to the ligament that keeps the two main bones in your lower leg from trying to spread apart and go past your ankle. So the best way I like to describe this to the football players we cover on the sideline is this is keeping your foot basically in the right spot when you're trying to land a jump. So without that feeling stable, you can't run, you certainly can't plant and throw, and you certainly can't pivot on it. So any rotational movement on your foot and any, any running or jumping or landing, you're just not going to have that confidence or probably that feeling of um, you know, without pain in order to plant and throw a football. So I was actually kind of surprised that he came back that quickly. And he probably is probably one of those things that in practice, he felt good enough. But then once he started playing in a game, you just can't have the same mechanics if you can't put your foot down. Is there any way, Drew, that we can get these you know, people back quicker? I mean, we heard about um, Tua when he was at Alabama, got this thing called the tightrope procedure. Um, what, what, what does that kind of entail and how, how does it potentially get someone back to play quicker? Yeah, so, uh, you know, what Tua had, it's a surgery where um, you put like a strong piece of suture and a little button on each end um, across those two bones to um, hold them together and um, allow the ligament to scar in and heal. Um, and I think he had it uh, like in November and then like next game was the national championship game and it was um, 
you know, we'll use things like that for like, especially more severe injuries. And um, I'm not sure if they ever said like what severity his was, but um, sometimes that is the best treatment if the bones are spread apart and need something to hold them back together. Um, and then, you know, there's some thought too that you can, um, uh, that, you know, may accelerate recovery, but then you're undergoing a surgery, which can also, you know, lead to a whole range of complications. So probably shouldn't be done too lightly. Uh, but, you know, with uh, Jimmy Garoppolo coming back at like three weeks after injury, like right now, we probably don't have too much that would um, speed that up uh, reliably. Um, and uh, I mean, I think those injuries just take some time to heal. And um, it's really just that like planting and throwing and you know, trying to run and um, every motion that he does is um, pushing on that ankle and just, you know, doesn't have the stability to, to do it like he should be able to. I think we talk a lot about, is it going to preface this by like injuries? You just basically have to put up with the pain. It's a pain issue. Like they should push through it. I mean, are there examples of injuries that it really just about how much pain you can tolerate? I mean, rib fracture comes to my mind. Um, anything else that, um, that you guys think of that are really just like, you know, how much pain can you tolerate? Am I supposed to say concussion here? (laughs) Well, edit that out. (laughs) Uh, Some of the, like the low grade um, shoulder separations, the AC joint injuries, um, those can hurt. And then every time you land on it, it's going to hurt. But um, if those ligaments are there, that one's probably safe to push through. Um, And that's one that sometimes it's even safe to, you know, give an injection because you're not really going to cause more damage if you play through it. Um, And it'll be uncomfortable, but not harmful. Yeah, I mean, I think the paradigm of, you know, as long as you're able to functionally do what you want to do, I mean, I think there's one issue of putting up with the pain. The second issue is like, can you cut, can you pivot, can you perform properly? So like a lot of times I think about like, you know, muscle bruises or kind of hip pointers, things like that. Like, yeah, you might be able to deal with the pain, but functionally you're not working well. So I think that's the misnomer that NFL player comes out. They're like, oh, why can't he just tolerate the pain? I think there are very few injuries that are just about how much pain tolerance, pain tolerance that you have. Yeah, and I think the coaches are really good at picking up on that and looking at the player, seeing how they're moving the first couple of plays that they try to get back out there. And for the good of the team, especially if you think about an offensive lineman that, say, for instance, has a mild MCL sprain, he can probably function 85% as well as he could before that injury. But that last 15% in the NFL or college level is the difference between your quarterback getting injured or not. And I think coaches in particular, especially good coaches, are really good at picking out the nuances when people aren't moving quite as well as they should, and then protecting their players and protecting the team by getting the next person in there. I mean, one, one additional thing we're seeing a lot of this season is also hamstring injuries. I know we were, all, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I mean, hamstring injuries seem to be one of those things that pop up a lot during the season, and they seem to take you know four to six weeks to come back, especially with cornerbacks and wide receivers. Brian, are there things out there that these players can can do to help speed up the recovery after they've get injured? And then maybe Drew can touch on what things they can do to not get injured in the first place with these injuries. Sure. I think a lot of different things have been tried. I think um, there was a study a while ago that looked at doing a steroid injection, which would decrease the inflammation around that injury. And the idea was if you got to a hamstring injury acutely and injected right at the muscle tendon junction where the injury was, it could shorten your time to return. And those initial studies shortened it by about a week. And more recently, players and coaches and agents have been interested in platelet-rich plasma or PRP, which is a concentration of your own platelets Platelets essentially are um, concentrated um, 
basically concentrated growth factors that go around and help in healing in a variety of different arenas. When they've been used in hamstring injuries in elite athletes, they've been shown not really to length, to shorten the time that you get onto the field, but you get to miss a game and, or you get to miss less time. And let me rephrase that. <laughs> so when um, PRP has been used for players at the college and NFL level, it's been shown that this, uh, it doesn't decrease your symptoms per se, but you miss less, miss fewer games. So you may get back on average about a game faster. And is, it's probably something that's safe, but whether or not we should be using that for every athlete, it hasn't really been shown. These are definitely high level athletes with a vested interest in getting back on the field a little bit faster. Um, and we don't know what the long-term consequences, even if they're minimal, it may not be in the best interest in a youth athlete, for instance, to get them back to playing Pop Warner football um, one week faster. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of interest in um, PRP for muscle injuries, and especially in like the elite level athletes. And um, I agree, like it seems like, you know, for most people, it probably won't make much of a difference. Like if you're looking at you know, like a 14-day recovery versus 10 days, um, I know for myself, like that wouldn't really change anything, but you know, if you're an uh, NFL receiver and that means like, I'm going to miss one game and then be ready at the end of the next week's practice, be ready to go in the second week's game. Like that's a, you know, potentially a big deal versus missing two in a row and um, then being out like ready for that third game. Do you think an MRI makes any difference in this? I mean, should we be getting MRIs in, in all people with a hamstring injury or maybe just the elite athletes? What's, what's the role of advanced imaging in all this? Um, it can help us see the grade of the injury. Um, and, and for most people, um, I don't think there's a real um, added benefit to it. Um, we treat the muscle injuries without surgery. Like muscle has great blood supply, great healing potential, and it will heal. It's just kind of a question of time. Um, and then if you are, you know, an in-season athlete where that time matters, um, you know, especially like in the NFL this year, they have that three-week injury reserve list. So if you can know, hey, like this looks like a more advanced injury. This is going to be like a four to six week type of recovery, or we've got a chance for him to be back in two weeks. That can, you know, really frame your decision-making on if you're going to bring in somebody else um, or just hold off for, you know, two weeks with a, one man down on the roster. Um, and I think, you know, for most athletes, like we can just say, um, you know, just monitor symptoms and then get them back uh, based on uh, pain and strength recovery. But uh, the MRI can show just that extent of the injury. And are there things the athletic trainers can do, sorry, in the preseason to kind of prevent this from happening? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, probably the off-season strengthening and stretching programs are the biggest things, like maintaining flexibility, maintaining strength. And, um, you know, I don't know if the, I haven't seen if the numbers are like way up this year. It just seems like they are, but, um, you know, it may be that not having the organized strength activities and, um, you know, having that um, standard regimen um, could be, you know, leading to more injuries and uh, just having more of a disorganized offseason um, ends up with uh, people more at risk. Yeah, so there's been a few studies that tried to look at if there was a way to decrease injury risk for hamstrings and if there are markers of who's injured or who's going to be likely to, injured, likely to be injured. And it's been shown mostly in the European soccer leagues. 
And they have found that a imbalance between how strong your quads relative to your hamstrings are does seem to make people more predisposed to hamstring injuries. And probably importantly, those studies also have shown that the people that are prone to hamstring injuries are also more prone to, um, to getting ACL tears. So I think taking that time in the preseason to really work on a strength and conditioning program that emphasizes essentially that whole posterior chain of your low back muscles, your glutes, your hamstrings is really important. Um, I think regardless though, we're still gonna see them. And I think looking at prevention and ways to get people on the field faster is gonna be as important as trying to eliminate these injuries preseason. And you mentioned uh, ACL tears, Brian. I mean, one of the things that was a hot topic a couple of weeks ago when, you know, there were tons of ACL injuries, go, you know, in the league, particularly with the 49ers, was the uh, surface, you know, where there's a particular kind of turf or grass causes injuries. What do you guys think about the playing surface? I mean, some people were saying that, you know, the Jets had to play, Giants had to play on that surface all the time. They're not tearing their ACLs, and it was more just a, a string of bad luck. What do you think about the data between turf and turf and these injuries? I mean, I, I think when we look back to the 80s and teams played on the true AstroTurf, I mean, the Houston Oilers played on concrete that was essentially painted green. I think um, I, I still remember Ozzie Smith playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. He could, he could do pretty much anything in any direction, not tear his ACL, and that was horrible f uh, turf. Um, the data shows that uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, Drew, but the data shows that grass and field turf are pretty similar, and they're a lot, both of them are a lot better than what they used to be when we can talk about the old AstroTurf. I think there are like some studies in college that knee injury risk can be higher with artificial turf. Um, and there are like other variables too that go to like, you know, the cleat size and um, like the length of the cleat and um, is this really just like is the cleat grabbing the ground and then you're twisting with that non-contact injury and, um, but I think there's a few that show um, it can be higher and then um, you know but then um, you know like Narav said that you know you've got the other team playing and no injuries on that side. Yeah I remember hearing a story about Jerry Rice saying that he never wore cleats he only wore basketball shoes um, when he played as well too, just to avoid kind of the, the cleats kind of getting stuck in. So I think it's kind of individualized. I mean, whatever surface you're playing on it based on how you run, how you cut, you know, I think that there's a lot of various factors that go into that beyond just the, beyond just the turf. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm not saying anything bad about Jerry Rice as the best person of all time, not just best football player, not just wide receiver, <laughs> probably the best person of all time. But if you Google Jerry Rice and cleats, you can buy game worn cleats with that look like regular cleats. So I'm sure it's individualized. Obviously, if you are slipping around a little bit more, you're going to be less likely to have that non-contact ACL. So I don't think we can just say, hey, no more cleats and we won't get any ACLs. Absolutely. Well, I think, yeah, definitely. I mean, as we see, you know, more ACL injuries this season, I think a lot of it just has to do simply with the fact that there, there was no preseason and all these guys, you know, all these guys are getting injured and their body's not ready yeah. for it. And I think also people are getting super explosive. I mean, ACL is still the same size and you get a 325 pound guy running, you know, four, four, he's going to tear his ACL because there's so much force going across that ligament. So I think something yeah. we're going to see more of as we, as well, we kind of move on. It's the first thing we can't blame COVID for, right? 
So we, we haven't shown that COVID increases ACL rates uh, all by itself. It's just that everybody was inactive for five months before the NFL season. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks again for joining our podcast. We look forward to having you on next week. Thank you for listening to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Mira Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne. We look forward to hearing your feedback and hope you look forward to our next episode. Thank you.